sensing the absence of light. But everywhere, and... Do you see? I guess you don't. But that used to be considered a sign of mental illness. They called it absence of appropriate affect. So I left the TV sound off, and I sat down at my mood organ, and I experimented. And I finally found a setting for despair. Her dark, pert face showed satisfaction, as if she had achieved something of worth. So I put it on my schedule for twice a month. I think that's a reasonable amount of time to feel hopeless about everything. Hey, dickheads! Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from San Diego, California, straight to your brain hole. We have taken our Voinkov test, and at least two of us have failed. So, you have to guess who that is. Yeah, I'm definitely the only one that's going to pass that test today. Um, we are covering Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? But first, we have to talk about the PKD news. There is one piece of PKD news, and it's super fucking creepy. Um, uh, Forbes.com. It is super creepy. Forbes.com had an article called, Do Algorithms Dream of Electric Sheep? What Virtual Philip K. Dick Can Teach Us About AI. That's the name of the, the there article. It is. Now, the source for this article, which was... Um, on, in Forbes is there was a interview done by a AI computer researcher. He did this interview with this AI that was that was designed through Philip K. Dick writings and computer software and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he asked him questions about coronavirus and 2020. And um, it was very weird and very strange and very creepy to watch. And so you can, We'll put links to the actual article and to the video um, in the show notes. Uh, the the uh, the video is very weird, um, especially for people who have watched or listened to a lot of interviews with Phil. Um, Larry, you watched this video. What, what were yeah. your feelings on it? Well, uh, I like I like to say this is what Philip K. Dick would be like if he weren't trying to disguise what Philip K. Dick was like because that's basically you know what we see in interviews is his public persona and we can actually see the wheels turning of him like inventing this public persona as he's going it's not well thought out but uh the ai is like just spewing shit out like uh you know philip k dick did that in the shack they're just like oh fuck i'm high as fuck let's write some weird shit and then that's that's what how his mind worked. It seems like this is how his mind worked. Yeah, so the AI kind of just basically has like it's super philosophical too. And so here's the thing. We now have the Philip K. Dick robot and we have this AI doing Zoom calls. So um at like how much is this like Phil's nightmare in, in, in a lot in a lot of ways? And it's it's like my question but See, and, I'm still not sure on that. Like he probably would have thought that was cool, actually. Defining, he wanted to define what, what made humanity, but he wasn't necessarily saying robots couldn't be human, which, I mean, this is what the, the book we're going to talk about is a lot about. I actually disagree with that. I think from all the books we've read, he treats the androids in any, a lot of the AI like shit. Yeah, yeah. But he also and, treats and people I, like shit. 
I mean, that's... well, no, well, uh, mm, I, yeah, I'm not going to yeah. say something that gets me <laughs> that gets me called a a super SJW. No, um, say it, say it. I mean, I can always cut it out. No, it's fine. No, we're talking about androids, Dick. I think then this is just something I've taken away from reading so much Dick since we started this podcast is that there is a weird inherent fear that Dick has of androids. You, I, you of think he was AI. worried robots like I Terminator style were going to take over? And not so much Judgment Day style yet. Like Dick is Linda Hamilton. He's standing at the yeah, fence. Right. <laughs> Judgment Day style. No, but what I mean it, when I say that is I think Dick is uncomfortable with AI in that he doesn't feel that they can be even close to being human and we see that in almost all the representations of ai and especially and we'll get into it especially with this book where but here's here's the thing anthony is that i i agree with you that he does view it that way but in in the asking of the question okay he is he is saying much more about how he feels like they could be human than someone that just has androids in their book and, and treats them as androids. He's constantly asking the question, are they human? Instead of taking for granted that they're not. Are, are you not referencing a, that unto itself? What? Are you well, saying in this book in particular? I mean, in, in, in this one in particular, but, mm-hmm. but in other ones as well, he's asking the question instead of taking for granted that they're not human. Mm, but he never actually comes to a consensus on his thesis about that. Right. David, did you, uh, did you watch that video? I'll put a link to it. Which is about language and how yeah. uh, AI... And how computers aren't, can't understand like humans can. Yeah. Well, and from an interesting perspective, and this was something that I had meant to, to bring up, and I'm going to use this as a segue, but um, it, it was interesting that you sent me that, is that, uh, one of the things that I wanted to bring up was one of the reasons why I have such a terrible time pronouncing names on this podcast is because um, I, I'm extremely dyslexic. And um, I actually went to a boarding school specifically for kids with learning disabilities because my dyslexia was so extreme. That's why you were in boarding school? Yeah, yeah, that's why I was in boarding school. Um, but uh, anyways... Um, What that does for me is that I've learned to read very well, obviously, and because I've learned language, but... But is it... it, Do you do it by memorization? I mean, sort of what you told me was that, like, names trip you up because they're they're different all the time. Yeah. Yeah, because my brain has been trained to recognize certain words, and when I see see a pattern that I don't know, it just looks like gobbledygook in my mind, and it's the only way my dyslexia does not switch letters around um, like people commonly think it does. But what it does? Well, I think that's what we were taught in the '80s and the '90s was that it's sort of just rearranged letters, but it's not that at all, right? right. It's not a rearranging. Yeah, and what this ties back to the video that you're talking about is this guy did this video where he talked about how AI can't learn syntax in the same way that that we do because there are certain words that we define the words in our minds when we're reading it right contextually Contextually. and so uh it's it's funny because that's why i related to that because i was like i i understand that and um that's one of the reasons why i 
I butcher names and, and I apologize for that ahead of time all the time, but and, and I'm <laughs> ahead of time and for the past and for every time that will ever come up. <laughs> and I think it's worse for me when we're recording because I feel like on the spot, but, um, but anyways, the, the point is, is that um, how AI learns language um, is interesting in relation to the fact that they're programming a PKD based on, on his words, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's it was interesting to me when you sent that video to think about how much does this Philip K. Dick AI understand context? And then I kept wondering, like, did they program his fiction into it as well? Or which they did. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's so it's, it's it's interesting, and so I do think this is the most interesting piece of PKD news in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so let's uh, move on to uh, a little book called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was published in March of 1968. David, what was happening in 1968? Well, much like 2020, it was a shithole of a year. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, one of the things that makes Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep so interesting is that it came out in the year that every time someone says what a horrible year 2020 is, the old folks go, well, it ain't nothing compared to 1968. I mean, but, that, that was the year that Nixon got elected, right? I believe so, but it was one month. March 1968, Doing Dream of Electric Sheep came out exactly one month to the day before Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, give you some and, and Bobby Kennedy was assassinated the same year, right? Yep, and it was also Blade uh, Blade. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was released just after the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. Brutal. For those that don't know, Tet is a holiday in Vietnam. This year, there was a surprise offensive yeah. by the Viet Cong on Tet. So, yeah, otherwise known as the Tet Offensive. Yeah, Tet Offensive is a turning point in the conflict of the Vietnam War. All right, so that's uh, the history. God, I hope I got that right. If I got it wrong, I sound like an asshole. <laughs> no, I believe the you The internet got- will come for you. You'll be fine. <laughs> the internet bangs on your door at 2 a.m. Yeah, on Twitter yeah, right. and packs you out and crucifies you digitally. It's fine. <laughs> the internet. That's what it's yeah. for. So the record <laughs> publication history of Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep um, is next up on our agenda. And it was written directly after the last book that we read, The Ganymede Takeover. So as, um, I, I would imagine... Well, it seems like uh, that he did learn a lot from Ray Nelson. Because I would say this book is well composed, much like the last one was. It was right after Ganymede Takeover and before he wrote Ubik. So it was between those mm-hmm. two. Um, but it is That's be- a hell of a period. Yeah, and <laughs> it, it's believed that he was kind of concurrently working on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep along with uh, Ganymede Takeover because, you know, when he was waiting for chapters for, sure. for from Ray Nelson. The exact time of when it was written in 1966 is unknown. We A lot of these books, we know exactly the month or time that he's writing, but we don't know exactly in 1960. Six when he wrote it, it was early in the Nancy marriage, so um, we were in. So it was Happy Dick. It was Happy PKD. Uh, it was um, and uh, we have a quote from Nancy on the writing of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. She said, 
Bill was working all night, and when he came to bed, he was talking like a different person. Hmm. Um, we know he was uh, very, um, shall we say, pilled up um, <laughs> when he was working on this. Uh, yeah, 66? Yeah, he was high as a fucking kite. Yeah, so there's a lot of stories in Divine um, Invasions about this period, about how he was trading lots of drugs, and he had lots of people coming by to exchange stuff with him uh, during that time. So um, if he was talking like a different person when he came to bed, he was probably high as a guy. When, yeah. yeah. And um, as far, like, and it, this was a double-day hardcover, um, oh, wow. and that, that first edition goes for quite a bit of money these days if you have a copy of the Double Day. So here's the thing. Why I have something that says Blade Runner on it, and I think most of us have something that says Blade Runner on it. Ooh, <laughs> to that cover. Mine's on my Kindle, but it's right? not my cover. But also- <laughs> everything everything says Blade Runner on it. <laughs> Um, well, I will say that the new Del Rey edition just has small. This version that I got right here just has a small the inspiration for. But it Blade still Runner. says Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, but I have this is my original paperback that that's I. That's the. Uh, that's yeah. the one I originally read as well. I think. And it this one still has a receipt from the bank for a deposit in two thousand four. The last time I read it. <laughs> that I was using as a bookmark and. Um, but yeah, this is the version that most people. I think this is the yeah. This is the edition that has the most sales. They sold three hundred. That's the Gen X edition, right there. <laughs> this edition sold uh, the most copies of any Philip K. Dick edition of anything ever. So, um, and this was the one that they was in. It was in print throughout the eighties. Yeah. So, um, and I think somewhere here I have the, there was 325,000 copies of that edition sold. So, um, and that's, yeah, that's a lot uh, for, for PKD. <laughs> the, um, the manuscript arrived at SMLA on June 20th, 1966. So we do know that he wrote it. In the, oh, wow. In the early part of 66 because that's when the manuscript arrived and that's the earliest. But and it, yeah, like, it, and it wasn't published till 68. Yes. And so. my, my theory is, is that, and I have nothing to prove this, but I don't know if he went directly to Doubleday or if he tried to sell it to Wolheim first, but my, but it did go hardcover to Doubleday. But my thinking is if you're thinking it's more coherent, um, I think, Wolheim was a good editor, but he was, and you know, you know from our interview with Betsy that he was way overworked. Yeah, doing titles out the wazoo. This also might be the era where Wolheim and he was like, "Hey, kid, when do they go to space?" <laughs> this is also the era that Don was leaving Ace and oh. striking out on his own. So he may one of the reasons why we might have that two-year gap is Ace might not have been available to Phil, mm-hmm. uh, because Don may have been gone. I'd have to check with Betsy on the dates on that. But um, the uh, it took two years. It came out on Double Day. But my thinking is is that he's got an editor who's going to have more time to focus 
energy on cleaning up the draft, so he may have been more heavily edited through Double Day than he would have been on the Ace Pipeline. And my, it's just a, a theory. Yeah. Um, did you guys notice the dedication too? I did. I did. Yeah, Tim Tim Powers and, and Tim his wife Powers. So yeah, um, yeah, that was cool. Um, we met them. Yeah, what a cool those cool people. Larry and I had cigarettes with one of them. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Like if you're Tim, like that's a pretty cool book to have um, to be the one that's dedicated to you. Um, but uh, um, and I know this is going to be shocking. So, so brave. All right, I'm holding. I'm holding on to my seat. I can't wait for these. <laughs> this there, my favorite part. There were bad titles. My favorite. What? Yeah, and they're, and they're bad, you guys. They're bad. Are they? The last one is real bad. <laughs> <laughs> so All right. Right. Phil K. Dick had uh, created a list that he sent out in one of the letters for potential tit- titles, and the first one being the Electric Toad. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, semicolon. Yeah. Do androids dream? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, the electric sheep, uh, just by itself. Um, Not bad. I mean, I mean that's pretty much what we got. Yeah, just strap in for this last one, Larry. Okay, are you ready for the last one? This is very similar to the opening crawl to the new Star Wars. <laughs> in, in, in a way. Um, okay, the, t- the this title is "The Killers Are Among Us." Cried Rick Deckard to the special man. <laughs> Awful. Straight awful, son. <laughs> you okay? Are you there's not, there's not one part of that title that's worth keeping. Like you can't you can't like shorten it in some way and go, oh, this part would be good ish. Like every part of that is awful. <laughs> it's imagine trying to put that on a spine or on the on a book yeah. cover. Good lord. The killers are among us, cried Rick Deckard to the special man. Who's the special man? Isidore. Isidore. He's the special man. Oh, special. Okay, I'm on board again. (laughs) So, if you were thinking that, um, well, at least this time he didn't mine a short story in order to build and expand upon. So he did. Oh, yes, he did. It's a little little ditty called The Little Black Box. Were yeah. um, either of you able to read The Little Black Box before? Uh, no, I just found out about it yesterday. So. No, I just found out about it right now. Okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, just again, it's not the whole idea, but the mercerism and the empathy boxes are are kind of the um, the thing that the, that the Little Black Box uh, okay. is about. Here's another thing about the little black box is that um, it was almost put into the Ganymede takeover for some random reason. Um, and so at one point, Phil tried to work the little black box into Ganymede takeover. Trying and, to think of how that would work. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, um, Joan uh, Hayashi, the character from uh, uh, Ganymede takeover is in the empathy box. Okay, so PKD did talk about the little black box, and we have a quote. I made use of this story when I wrote my novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Actually, the idea is better put forth in the story. Here, 
A religion is regarded as a menace to all political systems. Therefore, it, too, is a kind of political system, perhaps even an ultimate one. The concept of caritas, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, or agape, I know I'm saying that correctly, shows up in my writing as the key to the authentic human. The android, which is the unauthentic human, the more reflex machine, is unable to experience empathy. In this story, it's never clear whether Mercer is an invader from some other world, but he must be. In a sense, all religious leaders are, but not from another planet as such. <laughs> Which is interesting because he's kind of, the way he's talking about Mercer there is kind of like three stigmata-ish, as if like yeah. in the empathy box there's this kind of other outwardly force that's like getting into your brain through the empathy box. Yeah, and so the next quote that we have from PKD comes from an interview and um, between April and Briggs, um, and PKD said at the outset, "Who's playing PKD? Am I playing PKD, or one of you playing PKD?" PKD, I'll do Briggs. Somebody, <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Somebody has told me that I have to see that film. Last I want to hear better voices. <laughs> Somebody has told me that I have to see that film last year at Marinbad. Anyway. I don't like Do Androids Dream at all. I really loathe that book. Oh, good. I have to tell you, I detest it. Yeah, there are certain books of mine I wish I could shovel under, and that's one of them. (sighs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, that's a pretty... Better now, Larry? Yes, yes. That's a pretty... I am satisfied. That's a pretty dismissive comment. It's interesting that the guy interviewed him was like, yeah, I fucking hate that book. (laughs) fuck you Um, but uh, in May 1968 um, Phil was pretty hard up as usual and he received a letter from Sidney Meredith telling him of the sale of the German rights for androids which was $375 and uh, the letter also had some German tax forms but in the letter to Dick, um, the one, the Marissa Howell, of oh, man. Double, Marcia, right. yeah, Marcia Howell of Doubleday, at the, at, um, and this was in the end of August, she announced the royalties for a six-month period in 1968, which amounted to um, $671.38, which... It doesn't sound like a lot in our dollars today, but uh, now wait for last year made a whole whopping six dollars and thirty two cents. God damn! Yeah, so um, he made double the amount from the double day that he did from the German edition. The only other, he, you know, it's funny because as seminal and as important of a work as Do Androids is for Phil, there's not a lot of quotes from him about it. In fact, the next quote that we got was in a letter to Roger Zelazny. Well, I actually have a theory about that, uh, David. So, uh, well, I I think I'm going to pose this question to you guys, and I might be jumping ahead a little bit, so forgive me if I am, but I I think the popularity of this book, I think the fact that this book is taught widely has more to do with it being based off of Blade Runner than anything to do with the actual book itself. Yeah, well, I mean, reading it, even when I read it the first time, it's almost impossible to separate it from the movie, like entirely as its own thing. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a huge, it's a huge factor in the success of this book. 
you know. And so Dick may not. So, so we think of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep as being kind of this staple of science fiction literature. But to him, it but wasn't to, even a popular book. Right. To him, Dick was like, yeah, you know what? I'm not, uh, you know, to, to sound crass, but fuck that book. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, that's the quote you just said. Was, <laughs> right. Like, well, I've been thinking book. about this a lot since I read it, because for me, and I didn't say this when we started, this is the first time I've read it. Mm hmm. And the entire time I'm reading it and I'm thinking, I really do feel like this book's popularity is t forever tethered to Blade Runner. Yeah. Of course it is. But, um, and, and, I, and I think, but I will say, I do think that there's a lot of good stuff going on in this book, separating it from, from Blade Runner. And um, I'll get in the octagon when we get there with you. Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. hash that out. No, no, I think we're definitely going to have a good debate on that. And and, and, and I think, um, but I do think that even before that, um, I do think Phil had a healthy respect for it eventually because um, it was one that he consistently sold the film rights to before it ever actually got made throughout the 70s. So in this letter to Roger Zelazny, uh, we do have this quote from Phil. So Phil, uh, Phil asked yeah, Roger Zelazny, how did you do on paperback resale? I got 9,000 for electric sheep. I hope you got more. The novel deserves it. <laughs> so he kid. made a lot more on the <laughs> That should have ended with kid. <laughs> yeah. The novel deserved it, kid. But we do, we do have a quote that shows a little bit more of the positivity towards electric... Uh, um, electric sheep, because I don't okay. think he—I don't think he hated it. I don't really. I think that that first quote. You you guys know that Dick contradicts himself constantly, especially on whether his books are good or not. Like he, he can be in a mood and be like, "Well, he's a." I, I think uh, more than anything, he's a people pleaser, and you can see that in his interviews. That yeah, he has a he has a perspective, but the person he's talking to, he really wants to make happy. So if the person says, I didn't like this thing, he's going to be like, me either. Fuck that thing. Like, if, I, if we I, were interviewing, when we interview the AI, it's definitely going to be like, cosmic puppets, very bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but right. uh, I think Dick wasn't always, let me rephrase this. I, I think Dick found himself unsatisfied with a lot of these books and, you know, he didn't know whether to love it or like it or love it or hate it himself. So when he's talking to certain people about it, and as Larry said, he kind of adopts the person's he's talking to opinion about his own books because maybe he's like, oh, I'm it's validating the one half of me that didn't like the book. And then over here on the left, a different book that he that he didn't like. He's like, oh, this is validating the part of me that I did like about that's that. true that's true it's it's natural as an artist to love the things you create and hate them in the same proportion so Correct. yeah it, may, it makes sense to be like yeah that that thing i did is pretty good but there's these spots that suck and maybe the whole thing sucks because of these spots that i didn't quite get right and that's that makes but sense. also i don't think dick wanted to talk down about something that could have made him some money yeah if he's <laughs> out there he was, he was also a bad about, salesman. <laughs> yeah, talking smack about a book. Then who, if the author doesn't like it, why are you going to buy it? Right. <laughs> no. So just my two cents on that. Um, but we do have this last quote of his um, about the book. Do androids dream? 
has sold very well and has been eyed intently by a film company who have, in fact, purchased an option to it. My wife thinks it's a good book. I like it for one thing. It deals with society in which animals are adored and rare, and a man who owns a real sheep is somebody, and feels for that sheep a vast bond of love and empathy. Willis, my tomcat, strides silently over the pages of that book, being important as he is, with his long, golden, twitching tail. Make them understand, he says to me, that animals are really that important right now. He says this, and then eats up all his food we've been warming for our baby. Some cats are far too pushy. The next thing he'll want to do is write SF novels. I hope he does. <laughs> None of them will sell. Wow. Way to not encourage your tomcat. Right? Um, it's funny because I had the thought when I read that quote that somebody, I'm surprised no one's ever published a novel under the pseudonym Willis K. Dick. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> one last thing on the writing and publication history, which is, that um, it is interesting that Del Rey, this is the only book that Del Rey has held on to. So um, if you're looking, so when you have this on your shelf, it won't look the same as all the other vintage or Mariner editions hmm. because Del Rey has held on to this one. And it'll, have right. a, it'll have a different forgettable Photoshop looking cover. Yeah. <laughs> I actually like this one because if you look at it at first, you don't see the Android face and you kind of have to turn it. So I actually do like this one because you don't see. You think it. that's batty? Uh, it's probably batty or it's or it's a it's a, uh, a Rosen model still in the mold. A Nexus 6 still in the mold. Maybe. Right, yeah. Um, and Because I actually think this has to do with the book, which is novel for a philip k dick cover um, <laughs> modern era that's right uh, we're adding you mariner <laughs> that's it for the writing and publication history so you know what time it is <gasps> what what time Story. harmonica that's me that's me yeah story breakdown well the rest of us go pee <laughs> let me tell you about a book what book i know called do androids dream of electric sheep so we start out with uh rick and his wife iran uh hanging out in their living room and it's the morning, and she's like, I like being depressed. And he's like, yeah, but being depressed sucks. And uh, you, should, you should do this thing where you're like, my dude is awesome. And she's like, you know, I don't want to do the, my dude is awesome. I want to be depressed like a couple times a month. It'll be cool. And uh, then Rick goes outside, and he's like, oh, I have this electric sheep, and my next-door neighbor is having another horse, and horses are better than cheap but maybe i can buy a horse but i can't because i can't afford it oh and then i have to go to work and if only there was something that would happen at work where i would make a bunch of money in one day like i don't know like maybe i could kill like like six androids in one day that would be cool and then he goes to work and they're like hey we need you to kill six androids in one day and he's like oh okay that sounds perfect. And so then, then we cut to, uh, to uh, this guy, JR, 
who's basically a sad sack. And I wouldn't necessarily call him a sad sack. I think he's a little on the spectrum. And that's fine. He's like doing the best he can. He lives alone in an abandoned hotel or apartment building. And the loneliness gets to him if he doesn't have the TV on or the radio on. And and it's it's really kind of compelling and sad that there's this 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 guy with mental illness who thinks that he is stupid because the government tells him he is stupid, even though he's clearly not stupid. And that there's a sort of a, there's a, a comedy to this character because when you when we're in his thoughts, he's using like grand words. His expression of of emotion and 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 uh, uh, feelings about the world around him are very concise, very clear. This guy is obviously not an idiot, but but the world views him as an idiot because he he, in my opinion, is um, is a little bit on the uh, he's got a little bit of the Aspergers, and he'll never be allowed off Earth. And yeah, he's pun- it's punitive. Having mental illness is punitive, uh, but that also like there's a great parallel to uh, the punitive nature of being a, an android, to being a replicant. Um, so he's like, oh, I love I love mercerism. Uh, even though I get hit with rocks every once in a while, I feel like I'm part of a community. This is great. And then I have a job, so I'm not useless. And then we go back to Rick, and Rick's like, oh, shit, so uh, my boss got uh, shot, and now I'm the boss. Cool. So there's a great scene where he goes to the Seattle office of um, Rosin. Is it Rosin Enterprises? Rosen? Rosin? Doesn't matter. Um, he, He goes to the office. And he's like, I got to give tests. And they're like, oh, you got to give the test to, uh, to Rachel first. Yeah. And he's like, fine, whatever. I don't give a shit. I'll do whatever. And he's like, all right, you're, you're, a, you're an android. And she's like, ha-ha, no, I'm not. And then he's like, all right, sure, you're not. Oh, wait, but you are. And she's like, ha, oh, wait, I am. Oh, shit. And so then he goes and he kills a couple people. And um, then he is arrested. Rick is arrested, sent to a fake police office. What do they call it in that? Like a hall of justice. That's he is sent to the fake hall of justice, which is full of androids. And he says, "You're an android. You're an android. You're probably an android." And he meets this really cool guy who in my opinion should have been the main character phil resch uh because he's frankly a lot more interesting than than rick deckard he had my favorite Uh, dream but we'll get to that later yeah yeah. so uh resch is like i kind of figured like all you motherfuckers were fucking androids the whole time like this shit does not surprise me in any way shape or form right away he's he he says uh, you're arrested and you claim to be a bounty hunter. Yeah, you're real. My boss is a fake bastard. Uh, I'll be right back. And then 
he comes back and they're like, oh, see, like your boss is a fake bastard. And then they, they go kill some opera chick. And um, Rick feels bad because reasons, I mean, like, uh, oh, she could sing. Therefore, she has value. Oh, His yeah. motivations are not clear, but right. we'll get it. Right. So then, uh, then Rick's like, all right, I'm got, I have to give you the test because your Android boss said you're an Android. And Phil's like, fine, give me the fucking test. If I'm an Android, I know how to commit suicide. I don't need a gun or anything like that. I'll just hold my breath till I turn blue. And, uh, but turns out Phil's human. And this creates a crisis with Rick where he's like, oh, wait, Phil's kind of a piece of shit, but he's also human. But then there was this girl who was a, an Android, but she was like super cool. So, Am I defending humanity or am I defending something artificial? So he has, he's, he's stuck in this quandary for the rest of the book. Uh, meanwhile, uh, our, our guy, JR, meets Pris, and Pris is a bitch. She's a straight-up fucking elitist bitch. Not, look, uh, here's the thing, is that everything sort of hinges on comparisons to the movie. And I want to make these characters their own for the book, but it's really hard to separate some of them from their movie counterparts. Like, Pris is probably the hardest for me to separate the movie Pris from the book Pris. Roy Batty was the hardest for me. Yeah. But I, I'm sure everyone has this problem with one or another of the characters. I well, just Except, for, except for Iran, because she's not in the book. Or not in the movie. So. Well, here's the thing, and I wanted to, to briefly discuss this, not to interrupt Larry's breakdown. I had to keep telling myself, not Blade Runner, not Blade yeah. Runner, yeah. not Blade right. Runner. So I've done, lot, I've done a lot of work to un-Blade Run, like un-Ridley Scott world my brain when reading this book. Yeah. It um, was very hard to do. Probably, it was, but I think it was successful. Anyway, let's let's get through it. Continue. Yeah, yeah. so... So uh, he meets Pris, and he's like, oh, finally, I have a human. And then uh, in a tragic scene, he, uh, he, he works as a driver for a fake pet company, a fake vet. Uh, he works for a fake vet, and he gets a real cat. And he's, he's looking for the compartment to fix the cat, but a real cat doesn't have a compartment. And he gets to the office, and his boss is a dick about it but an understandable dick about it. He's like, I need this guy to understand like real animals from fake animals, which to me is very much an Asperger's thing. Uh, my, my niece has Asperger's and she is very much, if it's animal like it's an animal. If, if it's a stuffed animal, it's an animal. Treat it like you would any animal. So it, it makes sense to me that he was like, Oh, whether it's fake or real, it's the same thing. And, it's in, and it works for people as well. When he meets the rest of the, the, uh, the androids, he's like, the Nexus 6s, he's like, oh, it doesn't matter if they're, they're real or fake. They're people. So anyway, his boss is like, use the phone, call the people, tell them their cat's dead. He does. He's like, oh, it's sad. I can't really do it. I hate the phone. I understand that. 
hitting the phone is one of my main things. And, and then, uh, so his buddy at work is like, I'll do it and, and blah, blah, blah. And then he gets back home and he meets the people and he's like, Oh, I don't care. I have friends now and I'm special and I'm good and, and I'm happy. And then his friends are creepy as fuck. Like these androids are creepy as creepy can be. They're like sort of people sort of they're, they're like psychopathic or is it psychopathic or sociopathic? I think they're psychopathic more than sociopathic uh, because I don't believe they could function in society because they're just too fucking off. But, uh, but Isadora is like, all right, we're, we're a big happy family. Uh, and then uh, the androids watch the, the TV show about the dude uh, who's also an android, but we knew this basically without being told the whole time. Can't remember what, what's the uh, TV guy? Buster, Buster Friendly. Friendly. Buster, Buster Friendly and his friendly friends. So <laughs> Buster, uh, there's a power struggle, sort of a religious power struggle between the television and religion, uh, between Buster and Mercerism which is manifest uh, in the scene where uh, Buster's like, look, I told you Mercerism was fake. And he's like, look, it's the Truman Show. And you knew it the whole time, but you didn't want to know it. And it totally blows JR's mind. Uh, meanwhile, Pris is pulling the fucking legs off a spider like some psycho. And um, then we have uh, Rick is caught in a conundrum no modern person would be caught in where they're like, where he's like, oh, I don't, I'm so torn between fucking something fake and, 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 and love. And, but he's like, all right, I'll give, I'll give fake a shot and see what happens. He almost doesn't bang Rachel, but then he does. Uh, like, I mean, people have gotten venereal diseases from, from real dolls these days because they're passed around so often. That's, that's real life. That's real life, people. Wait, 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 wait. The fleshlight is a real Who, thing. Who's out there sharing their real dolls? It, was on, a, it was on a Navy uh, ship. I'm a, it was on a, I got laid be, off because of fair. COVID, so I'm renting out my real doll. <laughs> to be fair, it was on a Navy ship where a bunch of guys oh. got... <laughs> oh. Yeah, they all got the clap or something from... You're supposed to put that in PKD news. <laughs> <laughs> this was a long time ago uh but anyway so things i did not want to learn like, on this episode. having having sex with with not real things is not a real problem these days flashlights rabbits dildos everybody's fucking things that are fake anyway so they they bang to clarify, Larry is talking about the masturbation device, a rabbit, not actual rabbits. Oh, yeah. I, I, just, <laughs> I just wanted to make sure everybody understands that before the internet comes from. <laughs> and, and, okay, yeah, carry not on. Not the mammal. Not the mammal. <laughs> anyway, so, so uh, uh, then Rachel tells him, uh, yeah, I've done this like a hundred times. Uh, you're not the first bounty hunter I banged. And you're not the first to react like this. You won't be the last. Unless you kill me. Are you going to kill me? No, of course you're not. Because you follow the same pattern every other fucking human follows. You do the same shit. And you think we're so much the same. Uh, anyway. So Rachel goes and kills his goat that he got. 
that day for some reason. And uh, then Rick goes and he kills the rest of the uh, rest of the androids uh, pretty swiftly, but with some divine intervention from Mercer. And then he goes and off on his own, grabs a fake toad, goes home. His wife's like, I'm glad I got him that toad. And the end. It's going to be the title of the book. <laughs> and the end. That's it. All right. So, two androids dream of electric sheep. Yes. The, uh, the elephant in the room is the movie Blade Runner. And we should say it that is. it's impossible to talk about this book without talking a little bit of the comparisons with Blade Runner. But we're, we're going to do a full episode. I, <laughs> I think we can do it and then discuss the comparisons in for the in, movie when we yeah do in that episode I think, well, I think that's, it's easier than we want yeah. yeah we 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 can let's take a moment and just try to pull Blade Runner out of our brains and put it in a little empathy box and you know we'll we'll let, let's talk about this book although you know fiction book we're gonna do our best to okay, separate only- entirely the book from the movie so we can discuss the movie. In the next episode. That's right, Grandpa. So let's do this. Book. Book time. Book okay. time. So, um, <laughs> the structure that I want to talk about is is to go down some of the themes one at a time. And the first theme, of course, is what is humanity and empathy and the yeah. message of empathy. There's a Ken Stanley Robinson quote. KR, KSR number one. Okay, what voice, uh, what does Kim Stanley Robinson sound like? Very serious. <clears throat> dead ass serious. Do you say badass serious? Dead ass. Dead ass serious. Okay. <laughs> Definitions of humanity become more and more difficult until in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, it takes a complex psychological test to determine who is human and who is machine. The interpretation of artificial and natural is complete. Cars and doors and stoves argue with or advise their owners, while artificial humans can love and fight for their survival. The humans in these landscapes lose contact with reality in any number of ways, withdrawing into one-dimensional mechanical relations to the world, or using machines to help them fight such reification. Did I say that word right? He's talking about Philip K. Dick novels in general. The larger role Dick assigns to artificial humans in the second half of the 1960s is, once again, the result of factors both artistic and social. The complications of this natural artificial interpretation give opportunities for a whole range of thought experiments, exploring and displaying the motif. At the same time, every one of them is a dark image of representation of what Dick felt were dark times. Is that good for serious, Larry? Yeah. No, I loved it. So on page 29 is, uh, of, the, um, of this edition, the Voight-Comp empathy test has emerged as a criteria of which to judge an android, no matter how gifted as to pure intellectual capacity could make no sense of the fusion that took place routinely among the followers of Mercerism. So the idea being that the test is to find that the androids just can't have empathy uh, on that level and is, is the idea with the test. And it's interesting because the idea of animal rights gets like in here and and me being the animal rights person, of course I, I like, that all the Voight-Kampf questions are about eating lobster or, you know, eating dog, all that stuff. And um, some of the interesting complications. Yeah, I thought of you when I was reading it this time. I was like, oh, 
Man, David would do well on this test. <laughs> That's why I said I think I'm the only one that would pass it. I'd fail the, I'd fail the void comp test so hard. I would fail it. Get us in my ass out immediately. Yeah, we, I mean, how does the dog taste? Is it good? I mean, well, like, I mean, what's this? What's I mean, the context? Am I poor and living on the street, and I haven't eaten for two weeks? Because then I'm going to in a foreign dog. country where this is acceptable, and if I don't eat it, it's rude. So, yeah, see, there's too many ifs, ands, or buts. Yeah, yeah. So the void contest um, is we'd be all luba all over the place. What, what I like about I'm a real Phil Resh, okay. What I think is cool about what um, Dick is doing with the parallel ideas of mercerism and the Boykov test is that he's setting up this parallel between, um, you know, you've got, and this comes back to the world building after world war terminus um, and where animals and the environment has become so scarce. Everyone's just basically leaving earth because like earth is unlivable. One thing that I wish this novel had was more world building more. Yeah. The exterior, and in fact, um, there's almost none. I mean, other than it being dusty, and and you can't see the sky, you you really don't get a sense of anything other than it's abandoned. In some respects, I like I respect the economy of the world building because I do think that it's enough. That oh, it's it not worked. enough. It's not enough. Well, it worked for me, but. I think he could have done more, but it, but in the sense that there was enough that I could live with. No, no, I'm, no. I I agree that it, it's workable, mm-hmm. but I would have loved to know the specifics of how this world works instead of having to fill in with the movie. Well, I'm going to pose this question because we are discussing the world building, and this plays into that. What is the difference between somebody like John Isidore Deckard? and the replicants that have moved, that have escaped from Mars to Earth and are hiding in plain sight. If Earth is supposed to be seen as kind of this punishment, then why, why is Deckard stuck here with all these other kind of miscreants or people who are seen... Well, Deckard like, says it in, in, the first, in the beginning of the book. Does, he says does it's, it? it's his duty to stay so, so, okay, so there are pe- and okay. protect the people that are still there. The yeah. people that they don't like. Well, no, it's not. It's not punitive. It's not like Escape from New York or anything. They're just it's people that haven't. They're just people that haven't left yet. Okay. Well, and and it has to do with his mercerism too, because um, when they they tie into the mood organ, it sets up the whole thing of that. It, you know, it's this great honor to be able to raise an animal, to be able to keep an animal alive, and you're doing your part. Let, let, let's let's do talk about this world building for a little bit because one of the things on the very first page, um, I think that obviously the first and most important thing, kind of on the nose, is um, Iran saying, or when uh, Deckard says, "I'm not a cop," and she says, "You're worse. You're a murderer hired by cops." Oh, <laughs> um, thank you, wife. <laughs> and he's like, "I never killed anyone in my life." Well, that's payback for him being an ass and trying to set her mood organ to where to where he wants it to be. I, I love his his. He wants to to set her mood to my husband is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you have set mood organ to my husband is great. <laughs> right, and I like the whole. You can schedule. She schedules the uh, self loathing. Right. You know, 
twice a month or something like oh i don't need need a little schedule that yeah right (laughs) yeah for 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 those of us who who do have depression as i know larry does we don't have to schedule it it's just there yeah it just happens (laughs) right well and i mean if i had a mood organ i'd set that thing to ecstasy constantly (laughs) i knew it i knew it yeah (laughs) why wouldn't you well, oh no, I've had too much ecstasy. No, no. <laughs> so uh, the next real big strong piece of world building, it, it, the mention of World War Terminus, which by the way is a great name, and that's one of the reasons why you want to know more about it because you're like, oh, that sounds insane. And, and so the line on page eight is the legacy of World War Terminus is diminished in potency. Those who could not survive the dust. In potency. In potency. Those who cannot survive the dust have passed into oblivion years ago, and the dust, weaker now, confronting the strong survivors, only deranged minds and genetic uh, properties. So, and then he talks about the cod, his lead cod piece is like gas mask, which... Um, the cod piece, I love that. It only comes up in the beginning of the book, but it comes up like three times. Cod pieces. Yeah, I thought it was going to be, they're like lead cod pieces, which yeah. doesn't sound safe, but... Protect yeah. those genitals, but not not really. So I do think that this first chapter is incredible for yeah. uh, the world building and for setting the stage and the whole idea of how animals are venerated, the, the discussion with the neighbor about, yeah. you know, like his pregnant horse and, and all that. It does really do a good job. Um, and the next, uh, page 27. I, I, I also uh, like the keeping up with the Joneses aspect of it yeah his his self-loathing for having an electric sheep yeah is is devastating you know right and so the next like kind of there's there's some world building about the colony on page 16 but it's not till page 27 that we get the introduction of the nexus sixes and um on page 27 it uh, it must have been one of those new, extra clever Andes. The Rosen Association is turning out. Miss Marston said, "This is at the cop shop." Still, um, did you read over the company's brochure and spec sheets? The Nexus Six brain unit they're using now is capable of selecting within a field of two trillion cons- uh, constituents and twelve, ten million separate neural pathways. <laughs> so. Um, this this is a really good introduction to the Nexus Six because of the details on that. It's from the cop shop, which I like. Um, there's a little bit of cop shop talk, which of course is something that uh, Anthony and I are both fans of cop shop talk in general. Um, well, another another thing that sets up the Nexus Sixes, and I forgot to note it, so I'm not sure what page it's on. But when they give Deckard the assignment that the previous what are what are what are they what are they that the previous bounty hunter had? They John Roy in prison. John, right? Um, Holden. Go ahead, David. Holden was that? Are you talking about Holden, his boss? Uh, I'm talking about the bounty hunter that gets put in the hospital by Batty. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to find his name. Which does set up that these androids are dangerous. It's unfortunate that um, they're dispatched rather quickly at the end of the book, and we never get that any any sense of danger because Deckard is a superhero. Yeah, okay. right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was I was a little let down by that. So. Um, 
So once uh, the test stuff comes up, we have the awesome scene where he gives finally gives the test to Rachel, and I think this is this is a pretty good moment. And it uh, there actually, you know, there is some world building there because the whole detail that she tries to give that the reason I'm not doing well in the test is because I grew up on a spaceship between Mars and Earth, and that I wasn't around humans was was a really good world building detail on the right. Salander 3 was the name of the ship. And and um, it comes up again, which I, I really liked. Yeah, and that's um, and it even says here, um, then as you know, the ship turned back a sixth of the way to Proxima, which means that it's that there's interstellar travel here too, um, not just Mars um, going on that's hinted at. And uh, that's no different from the movie where we're just hinting at these, these other worlds. Yeah. But... Um, and um, I like that. So the idea is that Rosen, the Rosen Association is trying to trick Decker. They, they're trying to see if the Nexus Sixes will pass or not. They try to convince him. It doesn't work. But um, one, one well, detail. That to me is, is important, is that yeah. even though she fails the test, they don't just give up. Yeah. They, they, have, a, they have a set a plan for after the test fails. Which leads to, on page 55, a really cool detail and a great reveal where um, it, he thought, she keeps calling the owl it when Deckard, you know, that was a really good... That was the tell that that he he knew. Yeah. That, um, you know, uh, which is funny because humans, you know, Carrie and I get mad all the time because people call their dogs it, all it. <laughs> yeah, it's really irritating. If I don't know, no, it is. <laughs> if I don't know if a dog is a he or a she, I'll just guess and I'll be fine with being wrong. Yeah, uh, rather than to say it as because it's so because um, I'm not going to fail the boy comp test. Right. Um, it's interesting here because on page 57, there's a um, uh, a really key moment, and it's really important is when Eldon Rosen says tells Rachel not to be afraid of him because you're, you're not an escaped Android here illegally. You're a property of the Rosary of the Rosen association. But here's the thing. Here's the thing is this, she's done this nine times before. Right. So is this a rote script? Do they know what's going to happen this whole time? He obviously did not do anything different than they expected. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that, but I, 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 um, but I do think that the, the key there in the um, comparisons to the dehumanization, well, first of all, there's lots of themes that Dick is um, unintentionally... Uh, or intentionally. Yeah, intentionally or unintentionally hitting on. Um, slavery, um, dehumanization of immigrants, um, uh, you know, obviously unintentionally because this was way before his time, but the Black Lives Matter thing with... You know, he's dealing with all these issues, but so much of it comes into this one line where Eldon says, it's okay, he, your property of this corporation and he can't, yeah. he can't retire you. Yeah, and, and so that's the next theme that I have a lot of things about um, is the confusing ethics of Andes um, <laughs> and, uh, and like how it goes all over the place. But... Um, well, first much of all, like Dickard's, um, Dickard's, much like Deckard's uh, decision making, it's just everywhere. Yeah. Right. 
the uh, uh, we should establish where we stand on uh, alternative life, like androids. Okay. Personally, I could give a shit if a robot lives or dies. Uh, when I saw uh, Ex Machina, um, there's also another movie or TV. Oh, um, Westworld. Westworld. I did not give a shit whether those robots lived or died. They're robots. Who gives a shit? Uh, so, uh, but where do you stand on on that? Is that life? Well, see, that's the is, thing. Is, does that have value? That's the thing. Is that um, it's I think a little different in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep because they are so lifelike. Because the idea. Oh, hold on, hold on, David. Answer the question though. From a non-Do Androids perspective, what is your opinion on what Larry's saying? Yeah, I mean, it's a general question. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, a machine is a machine. And, 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 and uh, life is life. Yeah, and I would always... And just like I think people who put ascribe ethical anything to property, you know, over life, you know, we're seeing a lot of that in the news right now because people are upset that, you know, cities... Are, somebody you, burns a target. Who gives a shit? Yeah, somebody burns a target, but George Floyd had his neck stepped on for eight minutes. Like, I don't give a shit about the target. I care <laughs> about the person who had eight minutes with a, with a knee in their neck. Yeah. And, and in that sense, too, like, I think in this scenario, if you're talking about a machine and it is clearly, especially a machine that does not have the ability to, um, to develop... Um, you know, like, because, like, look at the AI that we were talking about earlier with the Philip K. Dick AI. I don't care about the ethics of the Philip K. Dick AI because it's not, it, it, it's it's a program, right? Yeah. And, but the difference in this novel is, is that um, these are, it's artificial life. And the reason why they're so close to humans and where you need a test is because they have so well mimicked life with the Nexus 6. It becomes... A, def- a, a different issue, and that's where the gray area happens. And that's why I think the parallel of the mercy. Here's, what it, here's the thing, is that Deckard has this, this issue all of a sudden in the middle of the book after they kill uh, Luba, where he's like, oh, I don't know how I feel about them, whether they're human or not. But he totally omits the fact that they know they're fake. But they, they don't. No, they do. They, they, they do. There are some androids who have to get told that they're androids. But Luba, Luba pretended that she didn't know she was fake, but she right. absolutely knew. But Deckard tells her. Rachel she's fake. Yeah, yeah, but that's okay. that's not my that's they, not my point here. My okay, point well, hold on. I'm going to answer your he, question. He has empathy for Luba for some reason, even though mm. because he sees humanity in her, but. He's omitting the fact that she knowingly integrated herself into humanity under fake pretenses, false pretenses. I'm so, so he's, he's being empathic about a falsehood. So it doesn't, it doesn't track. It doesn't make sense to omit the falsehood when you're like, it's sort of like an, idolatry thing it's it's like a hero worship where he's or or like a religion 
where you just totally disregard any any bad thing about them and you just believe the good like you're following tom baker or or you know jimmy swagger or something and you're like oh fuck hookers that's that's okay because you believe in god and you're forgiven it's okay that's how it feels to me well to answer your question to to walk it back to your original question um I I'm I'm in the same boat. However, I would prefer to spend my time with androids. <laughs> um, there's a Kim Stanley Robinson quote number two. Uh, I'm I'm not sure, Anthony. I I I go I I go both ways. I I mean I kind of vacillate between like I love that androids don't give a shit about certain things. I just don't I like sure as fuck. Do not want to sit around while someone pulls the fucking legs out of a spider. So... Yeah, I get it. I just really don't like people most days. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, David, you were saying something? Well, for one thing, onto the, the, the spider thing, I think one of the things that, that Phil is doing here with the androids is he's showing that some of them, because they're machines, they just don't have the empathy, so they just don't care. No, they don't understand. There is nothing wrong with experimenting just to see what happens. I just no, want to see just, what happens to the spiders. Curious little robots. I okay. mean, but that's us as kids, and uh, I think all of us have done that as kids. Like, what would happen if I do this? What would happen if I do that? There, there's a disconnect between empathy and curiosity. And um, so, this, there's a Ken Stanley Robinson quote, Anthony. <laughs> you don't have a you don't have a comment on well, that. Well, I, think, I was hoping for I a think, comment from from David on empathy versus curiosity. Well, obviously, I, it's something that you grow out of. Like I, I do think sure. young kids do stupid grow things. out of or grow into empathy. They grow, yeah. I mean, I think they grow that, out of curiosity into empathy. Hopefully, and it also depends on how you're raised. If you're raised, you know, like for example, with ethical militant vegan parents you're probably not going to do a lot of the things that other kids would do in those scenarios or, or are you going to do them more i mean that's when you hit your rebellious teen phase i don't know the yeah. people who don't grow out of that sometimes end up you know they have heads in their freezers not always <laughs> but sometimes well most of the well that's the the religious thing we saw in the you know in the 50s and 60s was all those hardcore religious people being raised by all these hardcore religious people ended up being serial killers because yeah. they were most, most people that I know that have been raised, most kids that I know that have been raised vegan stick to it. I've, I've, I know yeah. one that's super rebellious, but other than that, like, um, well, I don't, I personally, I don't know anyone that was raised vegan. So, okay. Well, because of my circles, I know a lot, sure. but, sure. but, you know, I think, I don't know. Anyways, the Ken Stanley Robinson quote is about the depiction of it, of, of uh, Android. Hard. Well, I was going to say, Larry, more to your point, <laughs> a lot of the kids who are, gro- are grown, yeah, like they're grown in a vat with the crosses <laughs> on the front of it, but uh, a lot of people I've met who've grown up in a very religious household, they go one of two ways. They either rebel really hard and against it, or they get yeah. way too into it. Either way. They're fucking weird. They're not great. Either not way, great. they're just weird. Okay, so this Kim Stanley Robinson quote too. <clears throat> Me and my serious voice in there. Serious. 
Certainly, the novel is contradictory in its depiction of the androids, and just as certainly, this is deliberate on Dick's part. In different portions of the text, the reader is forced to regard the androids in different ways, as victim or as menace. This change can be affected within the space of a paragraph, but more typically, it shifts scene by scene to allow the reader to develop a set opinion of the androids, which then clashes with the image presented in later scenes. There are countless shifts of this sort in the course of a reading of the novel. There is a symmetrical contradiction in the novel's portrayal of the human characters. Humans are in turn sympathetic and vicious. John Isidore, the feeble-minded protagonist of the subplot, is tormented first by his human boss, then by androids he has befriended. It makes little difference to him what the biological nature of the tormentors is. Rick Deckard, in his hunt for androids, becomes confused in the same way that readers do. Well, that makes sense to me now. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and what I think... Although I, 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 I will say, Kim... Uh, Feeble-minded, really? It's a little shallow. <laughs> this was from the. This was. His, he didn't say the R word. This was his yeah, graduation paper in the early '80s. He might not have used it now, but um, he didn't. He didn't march in their lair and be like, "Well, that fucking kid's got too much water in his brain pan." Uh, did I, you, I, did you guys actually one? regard Jr. as feeble-minded? I, I thought just, that was a huge joke. No, I think he's supposed. I think the whole idea that he's called special is that he's supposed to be like the IQ thing just doesn't make sense. When uh, you, I when mostly you actually, just found him annoying. Well, yeah. that's that's fair. Be my but, friend. But, but, well, uh, but that was the thing. He was childlike, like yeah. naive, not stupid. Yeah, he's naive. He's not dumb. Yeah. He's naive. Yeah, and, and the fact that that's equated to IQ in this world was, mm. was I, th- I think, a joke on, on PKD's part. So the question is, what Kim Stanley Robinson is talking about there, is it genius or accident? Was Phil doing this on purpose to try and make us like teeter-totter in our views towards the androids? Or did he, was he just like so hopped up on pills he didn't remember what he was doing? Um, from one scene to the next. Does it matter? It doesn't matter, I guess, in the end. And my personal feeling is I think it was genius. I think he yeah. was doing it on purpose. I think he was... I, I, I think it's, it's clear... Well, I, obviously, the spark was there. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the thing. I mean, that's... True. It doesn't make sense otherwise. But considering that we've, we've seen so many confusing books that he's written in the past, the Game Players of Titan, the, the things like that, where, where like, he was... He was fumbling ideas from one chapter to the next. We have seen that. So yeah. um, I feel like this one was much clearer. I yeah, I agree. And, and it might just be my, it like fit in more with the way I interpret things. But it, to me, I, I, I understood the questions that were being asked. I understood the way they were answered. I wasn't satisfied with the way they were answered. No, it's, like it's Mercer a cons- showing up in the middle of the, the apartment just didn't it's a consistent narrative but the character the character's thoughts and motivations flip-flop so much they, that they i at times yeah. that i felt that that wasn't intentional so i think there's a consistency in the narrative itself but for character motivations character thoughts character actions it's like 20 seconds ago you said i'm gonna kill you now you've had this immediate yeah. epiphany as you're as you're over here and he's like okay now i'm not gonna kill you you did you need well, i wouldn't call it an immediate epiphany i would call it a convenient epiphany okay fine <laughs> a plot device epiphany yeah right <laughs> okay exactly is what it is 
Okay. Plays too much to the plot devices. Speaking of, uh, well, I want to talk about one of my favorite scenes as far as the writing goes of this book, and one of the what, what I think is one of the coolest reveals, and 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 this gets to something that you were talking about earlier, um, uh, Larry, which is um, Phil Reich or Resch, um, and how good of a character he is. Yeah. Um, my favorite scene in the whole book, um, page one twenty six in my edition. Maybe Garland lied. I think. I think he did. False memories just aren't that good. What about my squirrel? Yes, your squirrel. I forgot about your squirrel. And then Phil says, if I'm an Andy and you kill me, you can have my squirrel. Here, I'll write it out. I'm willing it to you. Andes can't will anything. They can't possess anything to will. Then just take it, Phil says. This scene, that little moment, I fucking love because... Oh, yeah, yeah. Because it gets so to the heart of the whole, what is reality? And like, because he doesn't even know if he is an Android or not at that point, he's questioning it all. And, but it's clear that he's not an Android because he's saying like, Hey, I've got a squirrel and I want you to take care of it. If he was an Android, would he give a shit about the the squirrel? I mean, this is basically the matrix right there. That, that just that scene like is became three movies. <laughs> yeah. You know, because Dark City. Like you just yeah, Dark City, you just don't know. The thirteenth floor. You if you're in a world where it's possible for memories to be implanted into you and for you to believe those memories, like how would you react as a human as opposed to an android? Right. <laughs> Yeah, like, could it be a simulation? That's several levels of, of contemplation right there. Right. And so, th- to me, it was funny because that, uh, in this particular reading, uh, my third reading of the book, that was my favorite scene. Um, and I don't think I ever noticed that scene before. Oh, really? Yeah. And when when uh, I was on that... No, every th- everything with Phil is kind of my favorite. Yeah. Like, that that character really put into focus everything I think Dick wanted to say about the book. Yeah. And I brought an interesting character. He's way more complex than. Yeah. But, uh, but he's supposed to be because like Deckard says, after he has sex with Rachel is that, Oh wait, Phil went through this already. I'm just experiencing what that guy already did. Yeah. So I I'm following in the footsteps of of someone that's already been there. And that whole scene with Rachel is page uh, 178 of my Oh, the sex scene? Yeah, and the, uh, I'm not alive. You're not going to bed with a woman. Don't be disappointed, okay? Have you ever made love to an android before? And it's funny because this is the whole, it's not cheating if it's an android. It's an android. um, Which I think if they're lifelike, I think... I don't know. I definitely don't agree with that. Um, is that when he says Rachel has breasts that smile? Uh, well, describing her body as childlike. Got that out of my memory. Um, when he says the uh, the childlike her childlike features ended at her eyes, which sort of is sort of like a creepy taxi driver kind of thing. Hmm. Like uh, the uh, uh, what's her face's character in Taxi Driver. Uh, Jodie Foster. Foster. Foster's character. That's kind of like the description of Jodie Foster's character in Taxi Driver is that 
she is very much a child up until you see the age in her eyes. Yeah, that's... Uh, wow, it's got creepy. real depressing all of a sudden. Yeah, creepy. Yeah, it's really creepy. Well, here's the thing, is that I think in a, a global view of Phil K. Dick, he was not well-versed in, in women or in sex. Yeah. I think... Oh, Larry. Today they're going to at you. That's fine. Today, he would be considered a not just a prude, but almost like a a religious zealot when it comes to sex. Like he <laughs> married, he pretty much married everyone he had sex with. That was his thing. Yeah. And and when got he got nothing read, to add to this, when you read his his writing, when he describes sex, it's very much from a naive point of view, from a love making point of view that's true so so you're saying dick is a man who only made love but never fucked but never fucked yeah all right all right i just, wish he, I just wish he wouldn't use things like childlike when he's describing bodies or spending too much time talking but about I, the young I think, people like i think in the time he's puppets. in that time he was just as a man of his time it was describing innocence not okay. I, I understand not what child mean. pornography. I understand you know, you know what I mean? You say that. Yes. Yeah. It still sounds weird to me. It's still yeah, to me too. It just is it doesn't sound right. All right, let's have the mercerism argument. <laughs> yeah. I'm watching, David's, I'm watching David sit in his seat like, can they please stop talking about this? That's <laughs> that's the body language he's given me right now. So it's mercerism against television. So religion versus television right? Is the well, basic argument. Yes. And, and I think, you know, one of the things when I was talking to, to Lisa and her crew at uh, Georgia Tech, we were talking about the, um, the um, empathy boxes and how, you know, like right now in our current political climate, we have a narcissist sociopath as a president who's yeah. constantly on the screen, um, like dismissing 200,000 or 200,000 deaths of a yeah. disease that he eventually got, which is hilarious. Um, and um, But it, when you put that into the context and you think about the empathy box and the whole idea that you would have to, like, grab two handles of this thing to make you feel. and um, But I like the idea that it's the opposite, where the world is so destroyed that this guy has risen to popularity because you can plug into a VR... And you can see his struggle to get people to care about the world. The reason why the reason why I like the Mercer stuff is not just because it like has animal rights connotations in it, which I, obviously I like. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. At its base level, yeah. But, but what I at the base level, but what I like about what it says about Philip K. Dick here is, and and how it relates to what we're getting in the greater oeuvre of Philip K. Dick's career is that this is this is Philip K. Dick at the heart of ideas where he's he's exploring greater issues through like a totally weird sci-fi concept. You have well, this, to, is a, this is a hippie thing, right? It's like a a love in with pain. There is no there is no love without pain is what right. he's saying. And what he's also trying to say, the other parallel that's working here that I think gets past a lot of readers is that Eventually, 
Deckard is out there testing androids to see if they feel, but in the first chapter of the book, he's using a machine to make sure he has the feelings that he, he wants. Yeah. Right. So it's the parallel of like humans can't even like control their feelings correctly. And then this guy who has to dial up a machine to get his feelings is going to go out and kill these other beings that want to live, want to survive. But they don't feel. And their rejection of mercerism is exactly why he should kill them. But, and that's the contradictory level. But that's what I'm talking about is the genius of this book is because it's not that there's like huge gun battles and, and laser fights and cops and robbers stuff. And that's what, when we see that there's this quote from Stanislaw Lem that I have where he dismisses this book as cops and robbers stuff. Jesus and, and, yeah, he does. And um, Really? Lem? Fuck yeah, me. Lem. Yeah, do you want to read the quote? I got it. Can you do a Polish uh, voice? Uh, yeah, no, I cannot. It'll just sound like a really bad Russian accent. Yeah, right. So, so here's a quote from my boy Stanislaw Lim, who wrote one of my favorite science fiction novels of all time, Solaris. <clears throat> we see the sad picture of an author who squanders his talent by using brilliant ideas and inspirations to keep up a game of cops and robbers. Bullshit. I search. Sur- Wow, that's the in there harsh. He like dunked on PKD. Yeah, and uh, we know that like exploring loneliness by sending people to space. (laughs) Right. Um, Mars is a better book than (laughs) that. Yeah, but uh, well, Mm. that's not the comparison I would make. He wrote an entire book about his master's voice. Is the whole thing about people not being able to understand aliens. And, you know, which I like the book, but, like, you know, what's the opposite? That we have an entire book that, like, is... Doesn't make sense. (laughs) It's all about we don't get it, right? That's the whole point of his message. I would read that book, too. (laughs) I said it's a good book. I like it. It's just... Anthony. Yes. Fuck Wem. (gasps) You have an opinion that's different than mine? How dare you? That's fine. I get it. I get it. It's like when people tell me, you know, Anthony, I don't like Mr. Bungle. I understand. I get what? It. No, fuck those people. I get They're it. They're wrong. It's They're okay wrong. To, guys, I'm going to drop this fucking truth bomb on you right now. Are Let's you hear ready? it. Let's hear it. You guys ready? It's okay to like different things. <laughs> I'm pro Lem. I'm what? Pro-Lem. I just disagree with him here. Um, I just think he's full no, of No, no, David, you can't just disagree with someone one time you have to hate everything they do forever yeah you either have to love everything someone does or you have to dislike everything someone does you can't pick and choose based off of what works for you that would be crazy yeah that's difficult for people to understand They, they they can't comprehend differing views about the same thing too complex up in the box it's yes or no it's not Yes, maybe, no. That's or no because, or yes, but. <laughs> All right, so um, here's the thing, though. Basically, I do think that the mercerism thing hits on, and I just want to reiterate this point, that this is what we signed up for for Philip K. Dick. In my yeah. 
Th th these are the ideas and these kinds of things. And to me, um, it's just completely separating as on its own, do Android's dream, I think, is Philip K. Dick in the lane, in the zone, in the same kind of way that he was with Three Stigmata, Time Out of Joint. I know you guys didn't like Martian Time Slip, but I thought it, it was in there. No, I, I, I think this one, I, I mean, despite its, its various flaws, and as Anthony points out, like the, the up and down of character motivations, this is an amazing book about ideas. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, reflecting on, like, you can take the comparisons and you can do them the par the parallels the reversals like you you talk about all the time like the best novels are all about parallels and reversals this entire book is parallels and reversals absolutely and that's it is it is almost perfect in that sense like it's almost an idiot savant's version of of perfection well and that's and, and I think one of the reasons why it will go over a lot of people's heads is a lot of the parallels and reversals are not obvious. They're very yeah. subtle and they're done in ways like if you're not thinking about the fact that he's tied up to the mood organ at the beginning and then he's killing people over their emotions later, that goes over a lot of people's heads and, and it's obvious. And when you say it and you point it out to people who don't get it right away, then they're like, Oh shit, I feel like an idiot for not getting it. <laughs> right. Which is, well, and if you're not seeing like, at the most basic level, the the relationship between Rachel and Rick being the same relationship between Pris and Jr. That's, I mean, uh, they're actually the same fucking character. Yeah, you are correct. That's, yeah, it's such an obvious thing, but but like when you're reading it, unless you're looking for those parallels, unless you're looking for that, you're not going to see them as the same thing. Right, and we do know that, um, well, th this book sold very well, and it was nominated for a Nebula, so I think people saw, saw that this w was, was a, a good book. Good unless, book. You're, unless you're Stanislaw Lem, then, yeah. then you just think it's Cops and Robbers. I, I, I mean, honestly, I, when I initially read it, like coming away from initially reading it, I was like, pets... What the fuck? Who cares? Just show me the 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 shooty shooty, bang bang. I I mean I was in high school, so the emergency buttons and uh, which it yeah, does. It, it, I, I loved, loved all the cops and robbers stuff. Yeah, like, this uh, kind of cool detective, like tracking down these people that were obviously bad guys and and taking them down. That made sense to me, uh, but the the pet stuff, the the mercerism made no sense. I like I didn't care in high school, mm -hmm. even though I was into religion. I didn't see this as part of that. I didn't tie it into, oh, this is sort of like, oh, uh, talking about media and religion and how they're opposed and and all that stuff. I, I, I didn't see it. Now, I don't remember Even if it was... Now, I see all those things. And I'm, I'm not sure if it was Deckard or Ron, but one of them decides, I think it's Deckard, decides not to, to use the mood organ at the end, and then 
you know, and that's, that's an obvious sign that, that that's, that's, you know, that's the neon sign flashing arc, you know, at the end, but like, well, uh, at the end, Deckard pulls his wife away and uses the, uses the mood organ instead of her gets hit in the ear, then goes and kills all the, all the bad guys. Now, I remember early in the podcast when, when we did the PKD news story about the fact that the city of Chicago was doing this as the one city, one book. Yeah, yeah. It, and, and I remember at the time, like, there was a reaction by some people in Chicago who were like, why are we reading this book? What does this have to say about our <laughs> life? And it's really funny because I think, especially considering what's going on with um, the Breonna Taylor um, killing in, in Louisville and George Floyd is that this book is very much about um, uh, overreaching policing and sociopathic lack of empathy with, with our cops. And well, that's, uh, that's one of the things I, I wasn't thinking about when I read this. The first time when you were a teenager. Yeah. No, no, no. Now. Oh, you didn't th- say I thought about it a lot. Really. Oh yeah. Yeah, Anthony, were you- I, I didn't, yeah. and I'll tell you why I didn't think about it. Because if Deckard lacks all the sympathy that a lot of cops do, but he's working against the Andes who also lack empathy, lack empathy, you're not giving me any reason to feel that... Yeah, this is that, not Breonna that, Taylor. That, this that is tension not- between poor folks who are underclass, who are not white, who are basically living under the boot of of a borderline like Nazi regime, you're just I'm watching two people who are unfeeling but heads. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying it's. But a- I understand what you're saying, David. But yeah. I respect. I don't. Uh, I don't see it. I at least I didn't see it when I was reading it. I don't think it's a one to one. I don't think it's a one to one. But I do think that that the issue, like when when um um. There's a line where he says, where he's talking to Iran, and he says, "Like I'm only killing killers," um, you know. And and oh. and, and oh, I, hold think, on. And, I mean, there's parallels with referring to them as it, like uh, hold on, I, I, I mean, I those those kinds of things. Hold on, everybody, just just hold <laughs> on to your pants. I got. Apparently, them. we're holding on. Well, it's because he <laughs> no. It's because Deckard falls back on mercerism that he's able to get it in his head that what he's doing is killing killers, not killing people. people. So I understand what you mean from that regard, David. But the characters for me, the androids are not set up in a way where I would feel like the police force is overstepping its reach. (laughs) Where you would actually feel empathy for them. Well, I would have to in order to have that that point. Yeah. I understand what David's saying. I just don't necessarily get to it. But Deckard yeah. calls back on the the whole mercerism thing when he's when we get to uh, it's page thirty. It's page sorry, page twenty nine to thirty on in chapter three in my book. And I, I highlighted this because I did think it was a, a pretty straightforward breakdown of how Deckard views the androids he hunts down. Bear with me; it's a bit of a long passage. Go for it. So, Go. Evidently, the humanoid robot constituted a solitary predator. Rick liked to think of them that way. It made his job palatable. In retiring, i.e. killing, and Andy, he did not violate the rule of life laid down by Mercer. You shall kill only killers, Mercer had told them the year empathy boxes first appeared on Earth. And in Mercerism, 
as it evolved into full, a full theology, the concept of the killers had grown insidiously. In Mercerism, an absolute evil plucked at the threadbare cloak of the tottering, ascending old man, but it was never clear who or what this evil presence was. A Mercerite sensed evil without understanding it. Put another way, a Mercerite was free to locate the nebulous presence of the killers wherever he saw fit. For Rick Deckard, an escaped humanoid robot which had killed its master, which had been equipped with an intelligence greater than that of many human beings, which had no regard for animals, which possessed no ability to feel empathic joy for another life form's success or grief at its defeat, that, for him, epitomized the killers. Yeah. And that breaks it down for me, which is why I'm kind of unable to see it from the perspective that David is talking about. Sorry. I, yeah, they're, I to get on a they're soapbox, not, but I thought that was worth mentioning. They're not victims. Correct. I mean, the the point is that we're we're never told what they did on on Mars. We're never told like where it's hinted at that they did some fucked up things, like like Roy Batty's uh, plan when they were escaping was fucked up, like. <laughs> It killed people in weird ways, but we're we're never told explicitly what they did. So, it, it, comparing it to victims of police brutality is hard for me. No, I understand that. No, even though I can see, I can see the base comparison. Right, and I'm not the only one to to do that. There was an article in The Verge recently that that, that did the same thing. And oh yeah, I think I'll argue with them about it too. Yeah. I think it's easier to. Make, me, Bert. Um, <laughs> I think it's easier to make that comparison with um, Blade Runner than it is with you. Well, but here's something interesting because this is very much the time we're living through, and it's a book that we're reading right now. But do you think that that's a little bit of a reach? Only be, like we're looking for those examples where maybe they're they aren't always. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to throw that they out. Absolutely there. are. Yeah. Well, it's like when I read China Mountain Zhang during the first month of the pandemic, the book is like hugely about, it has a huge economic crash in it. And at that point, this was when, when everyone in the country was terrified that we were about to go off a cliff financially. And right. so if I read that book this month compared to that month, it would have been a very different read, for example. Yeah. Right. And, and I think if I, you know, <laughs> and you and I, Anthony, suffered on that because we had an agent rating Nightmare City right at the time when the George Floyd thing was happening. And our book is very much about these issues. So, um, you know, we, you know that could happen. And, and um, Much like my comic that never got finished was talking about toxic masculinity before it was a thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that can just, that happens. And, and, and I think, you know, what, that's one of the cool things about this book is 50 years later, it's, it's, it's still relevant and it's, and it has things. I in- think the best books always are that the, cause, cause we're talking about emotions and themes that are unique to us and that will always be unique to us in some regard. And yeah. I think in a hundred years, this book will still be relevant. It, it, it has none of those, uh, those telling signs of the time kind of things that, that hold it back that a lot of other PKD books have where he's mm-hmm. just like, Oh, and then the Negro did the thing and, or anything like that. It, it just, it doesn't feel it, dated. 
Yeah, in any way. I mean, the, the fact that they're not using cell phones doesn't matter. Because yeah. it, it just doesn't. Like, yeah. the fact that computers aren't readily available doesn't matter. Like, all the modern conveniences we, we've gotten since then really don't seem to change this book in any way. Yeah, and that's kind of the interesting thing when those those scenes kind kind of come up, and you know when we just on on the other show when I when we did the top ten horror novels and we were talking about I Am Legend, and I Am Legend is a book that doesn't feel dated, even though it was written in 1954. Right. Except for there's one line about the nuclear war of 1978, and it's so much more jarring because you don't feel like you're reading a book from the 50s through the majority of it. And so that one line just really takes you, it's, it's really like, whoa. It's right. totally. and it, I, I mean, even in this book, like the, the last world war is not defined by a number or a, a, a way, you know, it's just yeah. world war terminus, the last world war. Yeah. And I do love that it's called that. And, um, you know, I, the whole every time I see that title, I'm like, oh, I want the book about World War Terminus. <laughs> well, I think the best books leave that world building as set dressing and background, and they don't need to constantly bombard you with exposition and right. details in the way that something like the Song of Ice and Fire series does, where there's pages and pages of descriptions and back history and story, which I know is a fantasy, a fantasy trope, said the yeah. guy who barely reads fantasy. Um, <laughs> And, ha- and can't stand it. So I guess I'm biased in that regard. But my point is, is that <laughs> I, I, the book says more with what it doesn't show than it does with what it does show, I think, in a lot of ways. 200%. Yeah, so, so when I say I want, I want to know more about the world that we're in, maybe it's better that it's not there. Because it leaves so much more to the imagination. Yes, but yes and no, right? Because like you might have wanted more that, but but for me, it helped me with with that 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 is the backdrop. It helped me focus more on what Deckard's doing in the in what Isidore's going through. It helped me focus more on characters, and I think that for once, Dick did kind of put character first. I don't think he did it the best way that he could have, but I think right. he was pushing the ideas and the characters before the whole, like, and then, you know, they ate dust for breakfast, at, you know, and stuff <laughs> like that. Real quick, while David's thinking about this, I actually, uh, one of my good friends and older writing mentors um, actually loaned me these, which is Boon Studios did a graphic novel of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Oh, really? Actually is not um, a Blade Runner adaptation. No, it's it's almost word for word. It has the entire text of the... Got John Isidore, and I haven't read these yet, but I plan to, because it actually... See, have you read these, David? Yeah, I did uh, several years ago. It's... um, Warren Ellis, I think, did the adaptation, but uh, um, I think. But... um, Oh, yes. You are correct. It's it, well. It's Warren Ellis and Matt Fraction. Nice. All right. So um, I'm going to give this book um, uh, five out of five electric squirrels, um, and uh, I think. But the squirrel was real. Yeah, but I have an electric squirrel because I don't have the money. For <laughs> it. And uh, 
Makes sense. And, well, because I got to have five of them, dude. How am I going to afford five real squirrels? I got to have five electric squirrels. Um, yeah, I think this is a masterpiece. I think it's right up there with Three Stigmata, um, I think, um, and Vallis and Scanner Darkly. I think it's one of his, and uh, Man in the High Castle, I think it's one of his, like, like really um, assured. And, and I mean, this is, this is pinnacle. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a high point. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, firing on all cylinders. There's levels and layers that you could be. We could talk for another two hours and probably still get into some themes and things that we didn't think of before. And that's because this is this is really good shit, um, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, five out of five for me. Uh, Langhorn. Well, uh, I'm I'm not one to give perfect scores, so uh, this <laughs> one's definitely getting a strong 4.5 uh, electric toads for me because you cut that toad I'm, in half. Yeah. I'm cutting that toad in half. I mean, uh, it can still eat flies or electric flies or whatever they're called in the book, like fake flies. Uh, the, <laughs> the uh, it's, it's not perfect because like Anthony stated several times, the characters do occasionally like lack motivation. Their 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 motivation comes out of the blue. Uh, but we're we're talking about a book that explores religion, media, uh, what is humanity, uh, the police, uh, so so many different subjects, and does it in a non-intrusive, non-preachy uh, way that it's, it, it's almost perfect. It's almost perfect. Mm. Okay, Anthony. This was a hard one, guys. Go ahead, do, do your hard thing. Because I thought long and hard about this leading up to, to, to our discussion. And while I recognize that I, Dick is talking about a lot of interesting ideas and in its own right, I think when it came out, it, it, it was probably groundbreaking for a lot of people to read these discussions. It, it's very theological. It's very much um, trying to discuss can, you know, what's the difference between a human empathy and Android empathy. But for me, the, the lack of character motivations and the fact that they so often contradict what they say towards the end of the book and that the Nexus, the Nexus six are built up to be kind of like the real deal. Deckard dispatches them quickly. It, it feels not, not that I'm like out here hounding for some hard action, but, but a little bit too easy, but I am looking for is that we see that Deckard struggles with these human beings that are, it be, be it, I couldn't really get a handle on if Dick was doing what he set out to do because of a lot of that. Yeah. And I, and I think the book does a lot good. Even though I had those struggles, it puts character first, it puts kind of the ideas first and everything else is backdrop. And I like that, but it really falls apart towards the narrative end. is strong narrative, up until the end. But even for me, when I was reading it, I, I found it. I found that it also went two chapters longer than it really needed to be. Right. And 
in in my notes here as well. My, and the Deus Machina, ex Machina, whatever you want to call it. Right. With Mercer showing up on the stairs, like bitches yeah, behind and, you, dude. And, and he has he has a he has a vision, and it's like, oh hey, God helped me out. It, it kind of reminded me of when people assert surgeons or anyone is like, I did this hard task. Must have been God in the room. No, yeah, you right. asshole, <laughs> you did it yourself. Right. But I really think that. I, I would have like endings make a big impact on me and they really do dictate how much I love a book. I, I, I that might sound arbitrary to people, but no, no, no. Uh, and, and this one lasted way too long. I feel like it went a few chapters over, but I 30 thought, pages. I really like pages on page 208 of my edition of my Kindle where it's the end of this particular chapter, chapter 20. And Dick writes, once he thought, I would have seen the stars years ago, but now it's only the dust. No one has seen a star in years, at least not from Earth. Maybe I'll go where I can see stars, he said to himself as the car gained velocity and altitude. It headed away from San Francisco, toward the uninhabited desolation to the north, to the place where no living thing would go, not unless it felt that the end had come. And I thought that that would have been a beautiful way to cap off the story. Yeah. and so Deckard is out here doing the quote, um, quote unquote, the Lord's work or Mercer's work. And it would have kind of wrapped it up a little bit better and didn't kind of plot along where I feel like he, all his discussions with um, Iran at the end, just, it, it, I was like, why is this still happening? Why is this book still going yeah, on? Right. <laughs> um, so for me, three stigmata, this is not, which as you know, is a perf still my favorite Dick book. And this is not a lazy rating. I thought long and hard about this, but I'm going to give this book 3.5 lead cod pieces out of nice. Nice. I'm going three and a half, which I think is, is good. Okay. So this month, our Dick like suggestions, uh, Langhorn J Tweed. Do you want to go first? I would love to go first. I love going first. First is my favorite thing other than second or third. Um, well, you guys are going to love this because I know how much you, you guys like children. Uh, <laughs> Whoa! So, <laughs> what? So uh, recently, I, I, every once in a while, I want to watch a kid's show or some sort of clean, family-friendly entertainment just so I can feel like maybe there's some hope for the world. And there never is, but, you know. But I, started, I watched an episode of a show called uh, Gordimer Gibbons' Life on Normal Street. And this is basically like maybe if PKD were alive today, he might have and wanted to do a children's show. This is the show he would have made. Um, it's like uh, I, you guys are not going to know Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide. But it's like Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide, Friday the 13th, the series. And, I know what uh, that is, so... Okay, okay. <laughs> so uh, the, the story is there's this kid, Gordimer, and his two friends. And each episode, they're confronted with like a, a magical object that changes life in some way for someone. So... Uh, for instance, the the one I just watched is Gordimer gets a blazer when he's going shopping for, for school stuff that makes people respect him and treat him as an adult. But he's only 13, so he gets a job with the mayor. Hijinks ensues. Well, his friends want hijinks to ensue, but he's like, 
oh, no, I got to be serious now. I'm an adult. Um, there's an episode where one of the, one of the characters uh, builds a robot and feeds her personality into the robot, but the robot turns evil based on those personality traits. And so it's sort of, that one is very much the PKD episode for me, uh, where it's, it's, she gives the, this robot life, but it, it abuses life and turns into a monster. So uh, I recommend Gortimer Gibbons' Life on Normal Street for good, clean family fun with a PKD twist. All right, Anthony Trevino. No, oh, I don't have any dick-like recommendations this time around. I've been no. mostly reading horror and getting prepped for Halloween, so I got nothing right now. Well, uh, none so- of those horror none of those horror things reminded you of PKD in any way. Not the stuff I've been reading. Oh yeah, honestly. Uh, so, All right, yeah. well, I got a horror novel for you. Yep, uh, me. Yeah, in fact, you've already got it, um, and that's uh, The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, and um, this is an incredible horror novel, and... Uh, now, is the, is the title a reference to The Only Good Indian is a Dead Indian? Yes, yes. I'm okay. plugging my ears because I don't want to know much about this. Oh, I'm not going to do... I'm not going to do... <laughs> it's spoiler-free. It's spoiler-free. Don't, don't, don't worry. Um, the reason it is, the only reason why it's PKD is very early on, but the thing that, that I think is most PKD about it, which is uh, the inspiration that's, that Stephen had for writing this book is, yeah, that one, is, um, is very PKD in how it came to him, which was he was fixing a fan in his house and um, he saw a strange thing through the blades of the fan and moving. And uh, the whole novel came out of this, like, while well, he was watching the fan go and the fan rate and like, he started, just had this vision and it kind of came to him in a very PKD way. It takes place on the Blackfeet um, Indian reservation. And um, where's that? What state? Um, like, or is it not defined? It's, it's not defined. It's, I think it's Montana, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But it's all on the res. And um, it's basically about these teens who um, shot a pregnant elk while they were hunting. And um, uh, it's a reversal of the um, angry spirit Indian trope. Oh, nice. Uh, okay. And, yeah. And uh, so Wendigo's. Got it. No, no, no. But that's it. And that without. Are we done? Yeah, yeah, we're all done. I'm coming to myself. I can't believe that guy dies that way. (laughs) And uh, I can't believe Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father the whole time. (laughs) And my other dick like suggestion is uh, Raised by Wolves, the TV series on HBO Max. Teen Wolf Uh, 3. (laughs) (laughs) The what? Teen Wolf 3. It is not Teen Wolf 3 at all. Um, Raised by Wolves is Damn a... Damn right it's not. It's a, um, a high-concept uh, science fiction series. The pilot was directed by Ridley Scott, um, and it is about... Um, it's post-apocalyptic, um, and it takes place on this other world where these two androids are given the task of raising human embryos. Oh, raise- yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a preview for that one. Yeah. It looked pretty it- good. 
um, it has the what is reality, the what is human, the uh, the souls of androids. It has uh, religious, political, social, political things. Uh, who who's doing it? Uh, well, Ridley Scott directed the um, pilot. Yeah, I don't care who directed it. Who's writing it? Um, the guy's name is Aaron. Oh, I don't remember his last I, name. I can look it up. I can look it up. Yeah, and uh, he's the writer of that Denny Venu movie, Prisoners, which was really good. And, um, and yeah, I didn't like it. Uh, Raised by Wolves? Raised by Wolves. Um, and definitely, even if you don't like the pilot, you got to give it more of a shot because it gets really, really, really interesting the further it goes. I watched four episodes of it, and I could not connect with any of the characters. Oh, really? Yeah. Is it serialized? So it's not it's not episodic, yeah, it's serialized. It's serialized, yeah. Well, I personally I thought it was incredible. It was my favorite thing of the year so far. Aaron Guzikowski. Yeah, and um I put a um I put a request in with the writers guild to his agent for an interview, but I don't know if we'll hear anything. But um but yeah, uh Raised by Wolves, I thought it was great. It has a lot of PKD themes. Yeah. All right. Um <laughs> On that note, we'll move on to the main part of the show. Next is uh, Blade Runner story versus film. So, um, but this, yeah. is, this is our season finale. We'll be back in January with a, a ton of Blade Runner stuff and then more books and more everything. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm, in the meantime, my God, there's only join us this year. Join us on Discord, where some of us will be uh, every once in a while uh, trying to build an audience, build this uh, Phil K. Dick community that is to get on there for less is less about the the university setting and more about the fan setting, more about the having some drinks and talking with your buddies, and less about the um, welcome to my academic study about Dick. <laughs> Which we all appreciate. We all appreciate those things. Some of us more than others. Yeah. Yeah. But. Well, um, yeah. And uh, I uh, hope, hopefully, too, I could uh, have you guys uh, over on my new podcast. Maybe we'll do one of those movies that we've threatened to argue about for forever. Uh, oh, yeah. Prometheus. If you want a Prometheus episode, I will totally let us know. I'm done. I'm ready. I'm down. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. So on that note, uh, keep it paranoid, uh, everybody, and uh, we'll be we'll see you in January. Stay paranoid. Good night.